You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio, Hawaii Talks. I'm Catherine Cruz. The Hawaii Tourism Authority just released the visitor numbers for December, and as in the months past, they were abysmal. 236,000 people visited the islands in December. That's a 75% decrease compared to the same month the year uh, year before. Preliminary numbers show 2.7 million visitors visited Hawaii in 2020. That's down from 10.4 million visitors in 2019. The HTA report also includes the average length of stay, which is up, and per person per day spending, which is down. HTA's Vice President of Marketing, Patty Herman, and Research Director Jennifer Chun spoke with the conversations Jason Ubai this morning about the latest numbers and what to expect for 2021. Here's Jennifer explaining the key findings. You know, looking at December 2020, you know, there weren't really any surprises in the data. You know, we did arrive at, um, you know, 235,700 93 visitors, which is down 75% from prior year. However, you know, we were down much more in other months during the pandemic. So because we're monitoring the total traffic every day, we're not really surprised that we ended up there. Unfortunately, we don't have total expenditures for the market because there just aren't enough people to interview for um, their expenditures. So we only have expenditures for the U.S. So that's not a surprise for us here at HTA, but it might be a surprise for some people out there in your audience because everybody knows that there were people from Japan, there were people from Canada. However, because the statistics need to be statistically valid, if we don't have enough samples for each of those markets, it doesn't make sense to report it out. I mean, looking at the data, it's very unique this year because there isn't as big a sample size. So how do you benchmark this going forward and working with your partners on how to use this data in the future? Well, 2020 is certainly an anomaly because one of the reasons why we didn't sample towards, um, you know, the beginning of the pandemic is because we just felt that it was not appropriate for people to be at the airport. We weren't having a lot of visitors. And with all of the guidelines that the governor had for social distancing and everything like that, because these are in-person departure surveys, it just didn't make sense to risk anybody's health by having them do surveys at the airport. So we resumed doing surveys after the pretest program started. So in November, it's the first full month of um, survey data that we have for departure survey and obviously December also. So how are we going to have to use this? Well, we can't make assumptions about how people behaved during the pandemic because up until October 15th, you had to do the 14-day quarantine for the most part, and a lot of businesses were closed. So you can't assume traditional spending patterns would apply. So I'm going to be talking with, um, you know, a lot of people who use this visitor data, you know, from DBED or Uhiro, and we'll figure out what to do. But I think we're going to have to treat 2020 as an anomaly year because even during, um, you know, the Great Recession or during 9-11, we didn't actually stop the visitor industry the way that we did in 2020. So we're, we're going to have to look at it and just understand the data that we do have because the only data that we're really missing is the expenditure data. Looking forward, 
I know the pre-travel testing program for Korea got the green light. Why was that market chosen uh, as the next uh, next market? Right. So I'll take that one. This is Patty. So Japan, uh, for obvious reasons, is our first international strength, uh, strong market, if you will. And then the reason why we chose Korea next is because they have flights, direct flights coming through. Hawaiian Airlines is already flying from Incheon Airport. Um, and it really did make sense. Uh, and the process did go quite quickly. And it was announced on Wednesday. So the next market we're working on is Taiwan. Now, Taiwan does not have direct flights yet. And it is a relatively small market. But a lot of the Taiwanese will come to Hawaii via Narita. Um, and that's been a normal pattern, uh, even when China Airlines was flying. So um, the TTP process for Taiwan is starting to happen. And hopefully in about three weeks, we'll have some good announcements going through. Now, I know there was some pushback regarding marketing spending and the rate of return for uh, visitors coming from Japan. Could you talk about that, about any future markets and why it's important to continue to market to these areas despite, you know, the numbers not coming in, you know, maybe uh, as large as we'd like? So right now, it looks like... um as far as PACE reports are looking at, the Japanese market will probably start coming through definitely from the summer season, possibly towards the end of quarter two. And we just got great news from media in Japan that they have purchased enough vaccine uh, between Pfizer, AstraZeneca, and Moderna to provide for the entire Japanese citizen. So that is really good. Um, They're going to start vaccine there. Uh, Japanese nationals uh, by the end of February. Um, And we also inquired for Korea. Korea did the same thing. They purchased enough vaccine between three or four different companies for the Korean nationals. So once the vaccine process starts, um, they're doing something very similar to what we did, which is all of the important hospitals, teachers will go first, um, and then the senior citizens will go. So there's definitely a level of who gets to get the vaccine first, but they're estimating that within a period of uh, six months, everybody should be vaccinated. So um, that is very, very much key. Um, and also the you know, high per person per day spend. And what really took us by surprise was the length of stay. For the month of December, Japan's length of stay came in at uh, 11 days, which I don't think has ever happened before. And that's primarily probably because um, the Japanese wholesalers and travel agents are unable to sell Hawaii right now, that I know of right now through March. So these people that are coming through right now are uh, FITs or independent travelers, and they probably are um, the wealthier set, uh, the avid travelers of Japan, and possibly people that have um, relatives, uh, relationships with the uh, residents of Hawaii. So that's good news, and we're going to try to study that to try to continue that length of stay. It's it's a very good length of stay for Japan. For the rest of the year, uh, what are we looking at uh, as we try to work with other markets to uh, open up? uh, What's next on your horizon uh, over the next few months? This is Patty. Going into the future, we're going to fortify um, the Malama program, which is something that I've talked about in the past. Um, it's critically important that um, the residents embrace uh, the visitors that are coming through. So uh, in being creative and and also having um, our new CEO 
who really likes to connect the two. And so many of the hotels have already gone out with the Malama program. Um, and these are more um, regenerative programs, sustainable programs, if you will, where they come, uh, they might go to Hawaii Island. It's a program where, you know, they will be planting trees with the local residents. And what the hotels do to make that um, enticing, if you will, is uh, they'll add one night. Some of the hotels will do a one complimentary night. Uh, and that also extends our stay. So um, we will do a lot more of that type of program in the future. And we have really good news. Um, we just got information on the 28th uh, of January um, from the Rotary International Board of Directors um, that we were selected, Hawaii, Honolulu, as a destination, tentatively um, as a host city for the 2027 Rotary. So we're really excited about that. And that's exactly what the group team does. We try to look the now, in other words, maybe for the end of this year, maybe single property end of this year, next year. But the real citywide convention uh, team is um, really looking at three years, five years, ten years down the line, and we're gaining success. So we're very excited about that. That was HTA's Patty Herman, Vice President of Marketing and Product Development, and Jennifer Chun, Director of Tourism Research. They were speaking with the Conversations' Jason Ubai uh, about the latest visitor statistics and the outlook for Hawaii's tourism industry. Reality Check segment today. Honolulu Civil Beat has a story about how lawmakers are eyeing attacks on tourists to help advance our green goals here in Hawaii. Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair joins us this morning. Hi, Chad. Good morning, Catherine, and Aloha Friday. Aloha Friday. I'm so glad this week's come to an end. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. So this story today uh, by Kevin Dayton. Tourist Yeah, tax. Kevin... Uh, yeah, this is uh, it's interesting that we were just listening to Jason talking with tourism officials about, you know, what they're planning, but I mean, think about it. In December last month, it, there was a 75% drop, right? And visitors coming to Hawaii, that's enormous because that's just about the busiest usually the busiest month of the year for tourism. So that's a huge chunk of revenue. GET, TAT, other spending that's going to be lost. So here we are with a bill coming from some pretty important people in the state house saying, oh, well, guess what? We're going to try and add new fees uh, anytime that a tourist, or frankly, a local as well, uh, rents ground transportation. And that means, you know, whether it's a moped or a minibus or a bus or a van, certainly rental cars in general. Uh, the idea behind this bill, House Bill 433, is, of course, to get more revenue uh, to the state, not only because the state is facing a huge budget deficit, at least $1.4 billion in the current fiscal year. But could you also set aside this money to mitigate against climate change? And that's what the bill calls for, putting some of this money aside to, uh, who knows, maybe deal with uh, repairing roads, moving roads more 
inland uh, in light of uh, coastal erosion. So it's a it's an ambitious bill to try and, and as Aaron Ling Johansson, he's the author of the bill, says we're trying to strike a balance between, you know, taking care of our own needs here, but also our, our environment, our climate. Yeah, just yesterday afternoon I was driving uh, on the other side of the island and happened to go mm. by uh, Ka'ava, you know, which mm. the roads are just being undermined, uh, you know, by our uh, rising uh, sea levels. So, yeah, it's something uh, we've got to face. We've got to deal with yeah, that. Yeah, be careful when you're up in Ka'ava that you don't, you know, steer too closely towards the, the edge there because you go right in the water. It's a very serious matter. Uh, but this, of course, is encountering or certain to encounter opposition from the rental car company's budget and and, and so forth. Uh, Kevin didn't get any comment immediately uh, from them, but in the past they have historically opposed any kind of increase uh, because mainly because they already are assessed several fees uh, to rent a car, to rent vehicles. It's not cheap to do so. And I think then the larger question is, well, gosh, uh, do you just, you know, do you just rely on taxing the tourists more and more uh, to, to help the state with its own needs. Mind you, as I said, locals rent cars, rent buses, and so forth. But this really is something that is affecting people that come here. Well, as you know, there has been a trend among the state officials, tourism officials, to try and attract a higher-end spender, right? A higher-end visitor, someone who's going to spend more because... They have actually been spending less historically uh, over the years. They've been looking for bargains like, you know, Airbnb and so forth. Right. We want maybe fewer tourists because we don't want to see the uh, the 10 million, you know, visitors like we saw. Uh, and is this the way to do it? You know, you get the, the folks that have fatter uh, wallets. They can pay the taxes. <laughs> Right. And but, you know, that's a it's a big question. I will tell you that House leadership appears to be behind this. Uh, Aaron Ling Johansson chairs one of the committees uh, that will hear the bill, hear the bill. Uh, it includes Nicole Lowen and Sylvia Luke, who is, uh, of course, chair of the, the finance committee. They chair the other two committees um, that this bill has to go through. That indicates that the House is quite serious about passing this. Not clear what the Senate will do if it does pass as currently written, doesn't exactly say how much money is going to be levied uh, on rental uh, vehicles. But consider this, just a dollar increase on the existing rental surcharge would raise about $10 million a year. Mind you, that's during good times back when 10 million people were coming here. Yeah. And, you know, I think the one image that's burned in my brain is all those rental cars that were parked over at the Aloha Stadium. Mm. And, you know, they did take a hit, but uh, it's like, okay, do we really need that many cars? And that's a lot of gas guzzlers. So, you know, lots to lots to weigh here. Yeah, if it passes, the fee wouldn't go into effect until 2024. But uh, I think we have to realize that climate change is a reality and we've got to come up with ways to mitigate that now. All right. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Honolulu Civil Beat's Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. To read Kevin Dayton's story, visit civilbeat.org.
Support for HPR comes from Compassion and Choices, celebrating the second anniversary of the Our Care, Our Choice Act, allowing terminally ill adults to request a prescription for medical aid in dying. Compassionandchoices.org slash Hawaii. This week on Science Friday, COVID-19 vaccines have been distributed in the U.S. for about a month now, and a lot of you have questions about how they work. If you receive the COVID-19 vaccine, can you still transmit COVID-19 to others? With several different vaccines available, is one more effective than the other? Some answers and more questions on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Chaminade University and Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. This morning, HPR's Noe Tanigawa joins us with a slate of really interesting events kicking off. It's a feast to delight your ears and eyes. Good morning, Noe. Right, and you don't even have to leave home to do it, right? Yes. <laughs> right. Plenty to watch any movies this weekend? Well, the Sundance Film Festival's on. I mean, individual tickets are still available. Catherine, I've looked at the schedule of showings. It is super intimidating. Features, shorts, documentaries. And again, Hawaii's well-represented. Good to see Kiara Lacey. She was part of the Sundance Indigenous Program. She's screening This Is the Way We Rise this year. It's her film about... Native Hawaiian slam poet, Jamaica Heoli Malay Kalani Osorio. And then there's another feature everybody's looking forward to. Christopher Makoto Yogi did a Sundance Screenwriters Lab. His film, I Was a Simple Man, is on this year's agenda. So I think you've got an interview with him coming next week. That'll be fantastic. Because these and other talents are part of a growing maturity in Hawaii's film production. Taylor Chang, curator of film and performance at the Doris Duke, there's, there's kind of a natural evolution going on. In the early days, you do see um, a lot more documentary work, a lot more nonfiction work. And it is about calling attention to the really hard truths in our community that people would rather look away from. And, and there's value to that. But as collectively, as like a filmmaking community evolves, once you have enough work that addresses that trauma in these different ways, you can move beyond that phase of, of how do we address these traumas and can actually start world building. And I think that's why we see an uptick in narrative filmmaking now, because now our filmmakers are practicing what it means to world build. World build. That's, that's interesting. World build. <laughs> and Chang says that shifts are happening in documentary film, too. They're getting more experimental in how to tell multiple sides of stories. And that's, you know, that, that's always a big challenge. The Doris Duke's a satellite screening partner for Sundance this year. It's a big honor. So they're hosting exchanges about Hawaii film history, Hawaiians in filmmaking, other areas. Check that program on the Honolulu Museum of Art Doris Duke Theater site. It's really cool. And, you know, on the local film scene, Georgia Skinner has been so important as chief of creative industries under the Department of Business, Economic Development, and Tourism. She started their Creative Lab Media Incubation Program, and she said distributors are waking up to Hawaii's portfolio of film and digital media credits. She doubles down on broadband as key to the future, right? You broadcast Governor Ike saying that in the state of the state. That would allow collaboration across the islands and with international partners that would really open up. 
And Georgia Skinner credits Pacific Islanders in Communications. That's a group that you helped start, Catherine. Yeah, well, we had helped re- resurrect, uh, you know, that whole concept of helping to promote our pool of Pacific Island filmmakers. And, uh, yeah, it's really nice to see the quality of uh, productions that are coming out. Well, you folks planted a seed that is definitely bearing fruit in the kind of product that's available now. Pacific Islanders in Communications have done such a stellar job in getting our local work on PBS National. And so many of the filmmakers deserve such credit for being at this for a long time. Now we're seeing more narrative works and some comedy works that are also distributed on Amazon, uh, Amazon Prime, uh, some others, I believe, that are teeing up on Netflix. I believe Kiara Lacey has had some exposure there. So people are well aware. And uh, as a state, you know, recently we've had an outreach from what I would call one of the major animated feature Academy Award winning houses that is, you know, we're looking for writers and we were able to provide them with some direct contacts to people that have been through the Creative Lab program. Non-disclosure, she couldn't tell me who exactly that was looking for talent here, but it's happening. And Skinner's excited about a film that's premiering today on Netflix. It's called... Finding Ohana. She says the directors and writers collaborated closely with sources here. It's an action-adventure, coming-of-age film. Finding Ohana is getting a lot of media buzz. It's starting today on Netflix, and you're going to hear behind-the-scenes stories about that later on in this program. So exciting to be about that. Yeah, no, it, it's so nice and gratifying to, to see some of the productions coming up. Oh, yeah. Now, there's something fresh for all of us to look forward to after lunch today, too. I just want to flag that for you. A new feature by Hawaii Opera Theater, H.O.T. It's called Opera Kani Kapila. H.O.T. Executive Director Andrew Morgan, you know, he's only been here a year when COVID hit. He says there was already an inkling in that very expensive opera world that their art form was going to have to change. Now, opera has a long history here in Hawaii. It goes back to the 1850s. And Morgan says H.O.T. had already committed to connecting more with Hawaii stories and cultures, and then COVID came and ripped the Band-Aid off. Every company, he says, has had to figure out programming on the fly. In opera, it's a mix of digital like we're doing and live performances that are in socially distanced settings, like the Detroit Opera created a production of Gutta Demerung, the final opera in the ring cycle, cut down to like 40 minutes and done in a garage. So the drivers would drive through the levels and hear each scene as they would drive up the garage and then come back down. Atlanta Opera is doing stuff in a circus tent. Uh, uh, there have been drive-in operas where the people drive in and they turn to a, an FM channel to listen to the music that's being performed live in front of them. The idea of Upper Kanakapila is putting together an opera singer with a local artist, putting them together and letting them jam together. So there's a little bit of opera, there's a little bit of Taimani's amazing work as an ukulele player, her own compositions as well as arrangements she's done, and then they mash up things together on other pieces. There's so much creativity, and I hope we don't lose this. I don't think we will. I'm excited about this one. Oh, gosh, the pairing of those two. I know, those two particular great personalities. So that starts at 1 o'clock today, and you can still get tickets at the Hawaii Opera Theater website. Yeah, definitely these COVID times are a challenge to our artists out there to be innovative, and it's pretty delightful. (laughs) Yep, our Hawaii artists are up to the challenge. Okay, all right. Well, thanks so much, Noi.
Hey, thank you, Catherine. Happy Aloha Friday. All right. Happy Aloha Friday. We have been talking with HPR's Noe Tanigawa to check out her stories and the list of upcoming events. Head to hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, Bavarian motor experts, and Hawaii Naturopathic Retreat Center. Even though we may not physically travel across our islands as much as we would like to these days, it's still very much possible to explore the history and sense of place of Hawaii Island while remaining socially distant. Kaleo o Kauluau is a new podcast developed at the University of Hawaii's Hilo campus. It takes listeners on a journey of the Big Island through its traditional districts, or moku. Producer Bruce Torres-Fisher spoke with the Conversations' Harrison Patino about what he hopes listeners will take away from the podcast. The idea of this podcast it originated actually with a committee, a new, newly formed committee at UH Hilo called the Importance of Place Doing Committee, and this committee consists of faculty, students like myself. I'm a graduate student in Hawaiian Studies at the University of Hawaii at Hilo. And, yeah, and com- community members as well. And we're talking about how, what role place plays in our university and how we can have students and faculty and, and everyone else more connected to our aina, more connected to the land. So course during this time of COVID-19 times are different and most of my ideas were centered around place-based learning actually getting out there on the land on the aina but one idea was to make a podcast and to sort of digitize that experience as much as we could and bring it to people all over and so was born Kaleo Kauluau so really we want to kama or acquaint listeners to the island of Hawaii, and we're going to do that by by going on a huakai or a journey through the six moku of Hawaii Island, the six districts of Hawaii Island, and just really acquaint listeners with specific places within those districts, and we'll focus four episodes in each district of Hawaii Island and have on storytellers that will come and, and share their ike, their knowledge, about these places with us in the broader community. Now, you mentioned that the storytellers, each episode is going to feature community members with connections to the specific places. Can you tell us a little bit about how you decided to reach out to these members of community based off of whether or not they're teachers or people with a deep connection to the land? Right. So some of them are teachers, and all of them definitely have special connections to the land. And we really want to capture stories of the people, especially from the place or people that have worked on the land for many, many years and who are intimately familiar with its history, with the land itself, with stories related to these places. And we're doing that through our own connections. People we know uh, have stories and also with connections to people who know family or friends that are from that place or have deep knowledge about those those places in 
these various districts. Now, in the first episode of this series, the significance of wind is underlined, and it's underlined in that it serves to transport and convey. Now, during COVID-19, where transporting oneself to a different place is particularly hard, do you think this podcast has a particular kind of resonance to transport people into a different part of the islands? That's actually part of the goal. We want to take people outside. We want to take them on a journey through audio to these places and have them experience them as much as possible and learn more about them. And perhaps for some of the places when they visit them, they'll have a greater appreciation and knowledge of them and they can say, wow, I know this and that or this happened historically here or this place is a part of this story and that where I'm standing right now is where that actually happened. But yeah, I'll, let me talk a little bit more about the name of Kaleo Kauluau. So that was the focus of wind you were mentioning. So Kaleo Kauluau means the voice of the Uluau wind and the Uluau is a wind that's famous in Waiakea in the Ahupua'a, or land division of Waiakea in Hilo, in the Moko of Hilo, in Hilo District. And the connotations towards voice was that sometimes wind in Hawaiian culture and in Olelo Hawaii, the Hawaiian language, can sort of refer to a person's voice. There are some expressions like, Oh, literally means the wind blew, but it could also mean in the right context that, oh, someone said something or some news reached up here and you hear it in songs. In some Hawaiian songs, it can refer to speech and the conveyance of some sort of information. So that's more about the name and, and what we're referring to with wind. This podcast serves as both a visit, but also as an orientation of each district. Can you tell us more about that? The Moko of Hawaii has six districts, and we wanted to take the listener a journey starting from Hilo, Hilo District, since this podcast, we spend much of our time in Hilo District, and the and UH where it's being produced is located in the Ahupua of Waiakea in Hilo District, so we decided to start there, and we made the decision to take our huaka'i, our journey, in a clockwise direction around the island, because in some in some literature, as documented by Marika Venapukuia, a well-known Hawaiian scholar, it was said that in order to retain knowledge, when one would take a journey around the island, you would travel with your right hand towards the mauna and your left hand towards the ocean. So that would be in a clockwise clockwise direction, in order to retain ike, in order to retain knowledge and. We do want our listeners to retain the knowledge of this podcast and keep it with them, so we chose that direction. But yeah, um, we're going to explore four places, which depends on who our guests are and what place they will speak to, but we'll be talking about four places within each of the six districts and make our way clockwise around the island until we reach Hamakua, and then we're back to Hilo and and for now, that's probably going to be where we finish our journey with Kaleo Kauluau. Now, when I was listening to the first episode, there was a phrase that really stuck out to me. It's this old Hawaiian saying that says, the land is a chief and humankind is its servant. Is it your hope that this podcast will serve to underline the values that are referenced in that old saying? Absolutely. So that phrase, that olelo no'ia, or poetical saying, wise saying, proverb, um, that olelo no'ia goes, heali'i ka'aina. Ekawaki Kanaka, as you translated the 
land is the chief, man is its servant. And that really refers to the life. The land is our life, especially before when farming and it was there was no Costco, there's no Walmart you could go to. So you had to go to the land and really depend it. And people were really dependent on it for life. So the land is very important. And sometimes we might be a little detached from that today, but it reminds us that we need to take care of the place that we live in. And through this podcast, at least through my personal experience, I've found that through going on Huaka'i, actually with Drew, with Drew Cap, one of our fabulous hosts on the on the podcast. He's a geography instructor instructor at Hawaii Community College. And pre-COVID, one of the things that we do was take students on Huaka'i to various parts of the island and experience these places and get to work there hands-on and also hear these mo'olelo, hear these stories firsthand from the people there. So... Actually, myself and Leilani would volunteer as van drivers, and we're trying to bring that experience to people through this podcast as much as we can. But getting back to your question, yes, I feel that through experiencing places, experiencing stories, we form a greater connection with the land, and we appreciate it more. Because I can go to a certain place, and I can say that, I can know its history. It's not just a rock. For example, if I were to go to here in Hilo at the Wailuku River, where the Wailuku River joins Kuhio Bay, and if I were facing the bridge looking into Kuhio Bay, into Hilo Bay, I would see a rock formation down there as the river joins. And before, it would just seem like a rock. But after I know the story, I would know that it's actually in this story, in this mo'olelo, in this account, it's Va'akauka is a ba'a, a canoe that was said to belong to the kupua, to the demigod Maui, and that there's a whole story behind that that actually took place there. And at least for me, that makes me feel more connected to know, wow, all this stuff is said to have happened right here in Hilo. And what I'm looking at isn't just a rock, but it actually has a name, it has a function, and it has a whole rich history. And that makes me care for the place I live in more. And I hope that we can share that with our listeners. That was Bruce Torres Fisher talking with the Conversations Harrison Patino about the podcast Kaleo o Kauluau, a podcast produced by UH Hilo. As we mentioned earlier in this hour, Netflix released its very first original film featuring Hawaiians and the Native Hawaiian culture. Finding Ohana actually filmed around Oahu in late 2019. It features several actors born and raised in our state. You know, the Hawaii Film Office tells us that movies have been shooting in our island since, oh, 1913. Blue Hawaii, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Jurassic Park are some of the most notable. But very few major productions have actually been about Hawaii's people and culture. Could that be changing? 
The Conversation's Russell Subiono talked to the film's screenwriter about the genesis of the film and two of its stars about an evolving industry. <laughs> you want it. He's still kill your sister. You guys look taller in the picture. Go ahead. Mahalo. That's how Finding Ohana starts out. A single mother living in New York brings her teenage son and daughter back to her family's home on Oahu to care for her father. When the daughter finds a treasure map amongst her grandfather's items, it sets off an adventure that brings them closer to their Hawaiian heritage and each other. If it sounds a little like a 80s adventure movie set in the Aloha State, it's because that's exactly what the screenwriter envisioned. Christina Strain is a Korean-American raised on a U.S. military base in South Korea until she moved to the United States as an adult, where she enrolled in the American Film Institute. So I, when I got into an AFI, like I, re- I will never forget this. I was hanging out with my, some of my friends who had gone. They were excited for me to go, and... They were like, what do you want to write when you get there? And um, I just remember saying, like, I want to write Goonies in Hawaii. Like, I just, I love that movie. And, I, and I, I'm sure you feel um, a similar way. Like, Ki Kwan being in Indiana Jones and Goonies was a huge thing for oh, me. Because yeah. yeah. part of my love for those movies it was, like, the first time that I could kind of see myself in the adventure. Yeah. So, like... I, more than anything, the thing I wanted to write were, uh, you know, movies that appealed to not only me, but like 15-year-old me, like the kind of movies that I would have loved to Mm -hmm. see as a kid um, and a teenager. And just like, I tend to write the like past me a lot because I feel like I'm, that's what makes me happiest, like entertaining myself. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that like the thing that I loved about Goonies is the adventure of it, but I also love telling identity stories. So the idea of being able to write a script about, you know, an Asian American Pacific Islander girl kind of understanding where she came from Mm -hmm. appealed to me as somebody who went through a similar sort of process, you know, like moving my, like not to spoil the movie too much, but the main character, you know, she has a single mom who raised her in a metropolitan city who then goes to a place where she suddenly sees herself and kind of like, understands where she she came from without having a ton of frame of reference before and like i grew up in korea so i got very much my korean culture but again when i moved to the to the u.s i didn't realize at the time just how korean i was (laughs) (laughs) until i moved here like i remember buying movie tickets and bowing so there were just Uh like little things like that where it was an interesting thing to be able to write the adventure that I really wanted to see as a kid, but also kind of a personal journey of discovery for myself. And to, com- to marry those two things together um, is what this movie is. The filmmakers hope Finding Ohana will serve as an opportunity to showcase some of the things that make life in Hawaii unique. Our family relationships, our mythology, and our native language. All things that receive very limited screen time outside of small, locally produced films or documentaries. Kamehameha Schools alum Kelly Hu, who has over 125 credits during her time working in film and television, plays the single mother. She says this was her first opportunity to speak Olelo Hawaii on screen. There was actually a whole scene between me and Branscombe Richmond, who plays my father, where it was supposed to be in Hawaiian. And we kind of went back and forth about that. The reason why we decided to do it 
kind of hapa, right? Like、mm-hmm. half Hawaiian, half English, was because the director said, and I think rightfully so, when you put things in, you know, like subtitles, oftentimes people are so busy reading the, the subtitles that they're not watching the scene. Right. And it was such an important scene in the movie. You know, it was, it's such a beautiful scene between a father and daughter. Uh, ho'oponopono scene that, you know, we didn't want to take away from the attention of the acting and the scene itself by, you know, only doing it in Hawaiian where people would have to read the subtitles.、Mm-hmm. So we did as much as we could, you know, going back and forth. I actually did the editing of the scene so that I felt like it was enough English and enough Hawaiian to be. You know, respecting the, the Hawaiian culture,、uh, the olelo, as you were saying, but yet enough that non Hawaiian speaking people would be able to understand. And so I think it was a good balance. I think that it's so interesting for, for not just people from Hawaii, but I think people from, from outside of Hawaii who are not familiar with Hawaiian culture at all to be able to experience Hawaiian language being spoken. Also among the Polynesians in the cast is Branscombe Richmond, who plays the grandfather. This is our Ohana's land. I'm gonna die before I leave. All right! Ohana is a big part of you. You know why? Because you, Hawaiian. Richmond's father was Tahitian, and his mother was born in Hawaii. He's been in the film industry for nearly 50 years, initially as a stuntman, but for the majority of the time as a working actor and producer. He believes opportunities for Polynesians and other indigenous peoples' stories to be told in movies and on television are on the rise. I don't want to say it's our time. I don't want to say that. What I want to say is it's time that everyone gets to see a slice of life for everybody. It's, it's inclusion. It's also、um, the belief that this world is made up of so many people that. How lucky we are to know a little bit about them. So, you know,、uh, I've, I've been an actor and a stunt guy for so long. And for the last 20 years, I've also been a producer behind the camera. And I know what stations are buying what. I know what advertisers are going to spend their money on. And it's a very calculated mathematical system.、And、a lot of things don't happen by chance, they happen for a reason. So here we are. You know, Netflix has this Hawaiian movie. Finding Ohana. Netflix threw the dice on the table, is playing their best cards. And you know what? This movie's getting huge, huge response because not only do people of color or Polynesian families want to see or know or reintroduce themselves to this, but it's also people of all colors. You know, I want to say this white is a color. So people that may not be of the, you know, tan persuasion, they too. Want to know about their brothers and sisters across the room. And that's what makes me proud about finding Ohana. I mean, wait till you see it. With a, with a wonderful director named Jude Wang, she is wonderful and she's sensitive. And with a young cast of Polynesian people, got a girl, Lindsay Watkins. I mean, she graduated from Kamehameha and,、uh, and, and our two leads. I mean, they, they are just absolutely really good in this movie. It sounds like you're pretty hopeful for opportunities for Hawaiian stories to be told and for Hawaiian actors to get a chance to make a career out of this. I am very hopeful because the next wave of generation are these kids in this movie. And my grandkids, my actual grandkids, who may decide to do whatever they want to do, they've got stories to tell as well. 
There are so many talented people from Polynesia that are, are going to start to see doors open where maybe they didn't, where the marketplace was only local. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It was just local. But now it's going to kind of get big. Kelly Hu shares Richmond's hope for Hawaiian storytellers. She caught a glimpse of the future when she served as one of the judges for short film entries in the 2020 Hawaii International Film Festival last year. I saw a lot of great work, a lot of you know new directors coming out of Hawaii, a lot of great Hawaiian stories that were just touched upon in you know a short uh, sort of version. But uh, I think there's going to be more of that coming out, especially with the University of Hawaii Film Department that is encouraging more local filmmakers. And I think as long as we are able to to help these young filmmakers, you know, develop and and hone their skills, then definitely we should be seeing a lot more projects. And I would love to see more projects other than just, you know, the Hawaii Five O and Magnum PI type mm-hmm. stuff. I would love to see grittier type projects and things that really sh- showcase Hawaii in realism. That would be amazing to see. But writing the script or shooting a film is just the first part of the process of sharing cultural stories with a larger audience. Selling the script or finding distribution for the film are two additional gates storytellers must pass through, and therein lies opportunities for changes to be imposed. Changes to the ethnicities of the character or to the story's setting or to other parts that make it culturally unique. This script floated around for a little while, and I got some meetings based off of it, but all of the meetings made it very clear to me that, like, nobody really thought this movie could get made um, for multiple reasons. It's not, like, the cheapest movie to make, and then on top of that, like, it stars, you know, 12- and 16-year-old Pacific Islanders. Mm-hmm. And they were like, we, you know, who do you cast in those roles? So <laughs> I was just like, okay, cool, whatever. Don't uh, If this doesn't sell, that's fine. Then Netflix was interested, and it was a really interesting process because the executive who bought it, who who wanted to buy it, Janet Wu, she loved it because she, what she was looking for was her, you know, own version of like Indiana Jones. She was like, "Where's this Asian American or Pacific Islander Indiana Jones? Like, I'm looking for that script." So she was interested in it. My agent sent it to her. She read it, and then before they wanted to buy it, they asked to have a meeting with me, and I had a meeting with her and. I was very clear with her. I I want to get this movie made really badly. The only thing I want to make sure is that you're not going to whitewash this thing. And she just, she just, (laughs) it was cute. She had a moment where she looked at me. She was like, girl, why do you think I want to get this movie? (laughs) I was like, okay, cool. You get it. No one can predict the future, but with cultural inclusion seemingly on the rise in the film and television industry, things look bright for up-and-coming actors and filmmakers from the Aloha State. Finding Ohana, with its blend of heart, laughs, and Hawaiian culture, could be the project to swing the doors wide open for them. I just want to grab my sister who thinks she's Indiana Jones. We'll get them. My kids are inside a mountain looking for some Spanish gold. I have to enter. I mean, no disrespect. Your turn. What's up, Mountain? You looking beautiful right now. You're good. We can go now. We just have to go through. The jaws of death. That's all inviting. Oh. oh! See? Piece of cake. Don't move. Why does it have so many eyes? Those aren't eyes. I know you're scared, but I'll be right here the whole time. I gotta do this for Papa.
That was the conversations Russell Subiano speaking with Finding Ohana actors Kelly Hu and Branscombe Richmond and screenwriter Christina Strain. To hear the full interviews with each of them, go to the conversation page on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from ProService Hawaii, whose team is committed to helping businesses overcome the challenges of HR today. ProService.com slash HR experts or by calling 808-207-7634. Coming Saturday, February 6th, it's a live stream Atherton show with Hawaiian musician Keale. His style reflects the musical traditions of Mi'ihau plus bluegrass and Latin music. And it's bold, unconventional, and imaginative. It's an online show, so join us from anywhere. Sign up at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership Wealth Management. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Sippy's Restaurants, now offering dishes such as chili in bulk bags and pouches ready for the family to heat and eat or to freeze for later. Online ordering at zippies.com or by downloading the app. That is it for this Aloha Friday. Next week, we mark Black History Month. We'll have a call-in show. We explore race here in the islands in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement. What's been your experience? Call or talk back line. Leave your comments. 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Post your comments on Facebook or Twitter. And you can listen back to our shows on the conversation page on the HPR website. Our program is produced by Lillian Song, Harrison Patino, Jason Ubai, Russell Subiono, and Savannah Harriman-Pote. The Backyard Quiz theme written for us by John DeMello and our theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday and pick up the conversation 